Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Cinderella, Little Red Riding Hood, Hansel and Gretel, Sleeping Beauty. Fairy tales exist everywhere and in every time. For most, they are our first stories, our first trips of the imagination. Present through centuries of oral tradition, through the invention of print and later advances in television and film, these stories have altered and shaped themselves in reflection of changing cultural norms. But let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to their creation and the first time that they were written down and fixed. Let's go back to the 16th and 17th centuries. Here to discuss fairy tales and their tellers in the 16th and 17th centuries is Nicholas Jubber, author of The Fairy Tellers, a journey into the secret history of fairy tales. Nick, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me on. I wonder if you can start by telling us a fairy tale, one of those that you tell in your book. The Tale of the Flea The King of High Mountain has been bitten by a flea and he is enraptured. What a beautiful creature it is. He feeds himself to his hematophagic guest until it grows to the size of a sheep and dies. So gargantuan is its hide that nobody can guess the creature's identity, and the king issues a proclamation. Whoever can answer this riddle will marry his daughter. Noblemen flock to this bridal contest. One says it's the skin of a lynx, another suggests a crocodile. But none can hit the mark until an ogre appears, a creature so hideous it would make the bravest young man shit his pants. With a single sniff the ogre identifies it. That is the ringleader of all fleas. Discovering she will have to marry the ogre, Princess Portziella is furious. What sort of bad manners have I used with you, she asks her father, to be delivered into the hands of this bogeyman? But the king insists his pledge must be kept and sends her off with her revolting groom. Dragged to a hut in the heart of a forest, Portziella pines for her former life in the midst of plenty until an old woman passes by. Pouring out her sob story, she wins the old woman's pity the aid of her seven sons. 
Each of them has a special gift. One can make a sea of soap out of his spit. Another can turn a piece of iron into a field of razors. Another can raise a tower from a stone. Portiella escapes with these remarkable brothers, but the ogre sets off in pursuit. They keep him back with their soapy sea, razor field and other tricks, but the ogre is relentless. Finally, they conjure a tower. When the ogre climbs up to reach them, they shoot him down with a crossbow and slit his throat like a lump of ricotta. Portiella is freed from the husband she never wanted, and the seven sons are loaded with gifts by the king, who has been repenting of his folly ever since he sent his daughter away. Thank you. What's so wonderful about that story is it speaks right into the heart of many experiences of royal and noble women in the 16th and 17th centuries, that they will be sent away to people they don't want to marry, possibly revolting, maybe not ogres. But there is a way out in this story. Yes, there's always an escape plan, isn't there? There's always some way out. I also really like that the ogre is the only one who can identify the skin. So although things don't go well for him in the end, he outwits the other people in the court, at least in that respect. And he does actually want to be a good husband, but unfortunately he's just not able to. Let's go back to the beginning then. The first European versions of tales that we know as Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty were written by a man born in Naples in 1575 named Gian Battista Basile, or perhaps I should say written down by him. What do we know about Basile? He was an extraordinary figure of his time who wandered all over the place around what we now call Italy and had all kinds of adventures. His big problem when he was a young man was that he couldn't find a patron. And so he set off to Venice, found a patron there, and then he found himself having to go to Crete to fight in the war between the Venetians and the Ottoman Turks. He wrote about how the life of a military gentleman was an absolute disaster. You're likely to be hit by a cannon or catch scabies or end up even worse in a hospital with a pension plan. And so he came back to mainland Italy where he found out that his sister, Adriana, had become the biggest diva of her day. And she was having verses written for her by Claudio Monteverdi in Mantua. And so he hung on to her coattails for a while and then he never managed to stay in a post for very long. He had a very restless character and he'd wander around. He was writing masquerades for the Viceroy of Naples in one moment, then he was writing poetry for the Prince of Avellino, then he was down in the Basilicata as a provincial governor and then in a place called Gugliano, which is where he ended around the same time that there was an eruption of Mount Vesuvius and a huge amount of ash in the sky. He caught an infection and died. And he left behind a huge amount of poetry and all kinds of different forms of writing, including his collection of fairy tales, Le Cunto de Le Cunti. And these are some of the earliest versions of stories that have since become classics, such as the story of Cenerentola, which then becomes Cendrillon in French and eventually Cinderella in English. And although that story can be traced back much further than Basile, it's through his version that we can see the version that we know today being directed with the story of the girl who has to skivvy for her stepsisters, the fairy godmother and eventually going to the board and leaving her shoe behind. And many other stories, there's a version of Sleeping Beauty, which again can be found in an early version in Purse Forest, but the version that we know as a fairy tale, as that sort of shorter version can be told in the nursery, really stretches back to Basile's, and there's a version of Puss in Boots, there's the story of Rapunzel, which is his again is one of the earliest versions. It's a really important collection for bringing these stories into the literary world. They'd been there floating around Ori, and that's the important thing about fairy tales, that Ori, they had gone back centuries and in many cases even millennia. But it was characters like Gian Battista Basile and Giovanni Straparoda before him who put these stories down in writing so that they could then be passed on and find their way into people's nurseries and bedtime reading. And 
Is it the case that if you look at those stories that are codified, gathered and collected by Basile, we do see all the elements of the stories that we now know, or at least the central ones. Can we really map the modern fairy tales onto these versions that develop in the 16th and mostly 17th century? I think we absolutely can, but with the caution that when we look back at Basile's versions, he brought a lot of his own personality into them. And so these stories are loaded up with epigrams and quotes from classical poets and various maxims and epithets and various bits and pieces that sort of coming into them. So it's a very Baroque style. There was an 18th century economist called Galliani who wrote that trying to read the tale of tales made you want to vomit even on an empty stomach because it was just so rich, there's so much in it. There's one story that he told, which doesn't get repeated in many collections these days, called The Cockroach, the Mouse and the Cricket. And it's about a hapless fool who ends up somehow managing to marry a princess because he sold the family cow and instead got this magical cockroach, mouse and cricket who can dance and sing. And the princess laughs for the first time in her life. So he gets to marry her. But the king doesn't really want his daughter to marry this bumpkin. So he has him thrown into the lion's den after not being able to consummate the marriage and has her married off instead to a big overeating lord. But the cockroach, mouse and cricket then come to the hero Nardiello's rescue by burrowing inside the nether regions of the lord so that he makes a big mess of the marriage chamber and eventually is swapped for the original hero. It's a very dirty scatological tale that's actually quite difficult to repeat to children, but it has all the magical qualities that we associate with fairy tales. So those are the kind of stories, though, that do make Basile's version feel very much of their own kind. And sometimes you think, well, how do these stories translate? But when you look at some of those very famous stories, there are 50 stories in his collection. There's a handful of those that have become the sort of classic, iconic tales. But when you look at those ones, yes, I think you can definitely locate the stories that we know today. But also what makes them so interesting in Basile's version is how much he puts of his own landscape and environment. So you have the architecture of Naples, the landscape of southern Italy, you have various sort of cultural details like in his version of Cinderella at the feast they have macaroni and they have various sort of beautiful Italian pastries and there's that sense that you're very much in that particular place you have the description of the balconies which is very specifically Neapolitan so it's all those things which is what gives them their charm to us reading them today but if you look at his versions to then the versions of stories told by, say, Charles Perrault in France in the 1690s, he stripped away a lot of the details and made them much simpler, much more the sort of stories that can be told quite easily in a nursery to children. And that, I think, is the point where these stories really take off because they needed to get stripped down to the sort of bare kind of magical story elements in order to really take off and to become these sort of global hits. So I'd like to pick up on a couple of things you said there. So we've got stories that are really being prepared for adults that need that kind of slimming down, perhaps a little bit of the scatology taken out of them to make them suitable for children at a later stage. But sticking with Basile's tales for the time being, and the fact that they were unpublished in his lifetime as well, is there a sense in which they're also reflecting his society with some of the sort of incendiary tone that they have against the Spanish, for example, or something politically provocative in them. Do we see something more than storytelling going on in them? 
Absolutely. And I think it's such an interesting question because he wrote his stories in the Neapolitan dialect and that wasn't very common at the time. It's something that he and, and some of the people in his circle, he belonged to these sort of literary salons, academies. One of them was called the Academy of the Eccentrics. And they were these minor noblemen of the time who would gather under a patron and would exchange witty poems and stories. But they were living during the time of the Spanish occupation of Naples. And he was crossing barriers and crossing different worlds. At times he was writing things for the Spanish Viceroy at other times he was writing these stories in which pointedly leaders are constantly shown to be useless, to be stupid, to be out of touch. There's a lovely story called Green Meadow where a girl has to flee into the woods and she's in the forest and she needs to find a particular ointment so that she can heal her wounded lover. And she's listening to these ogres who are sitting there chatting away about what's going on in the world. And one of them goes, you've been into the city. What's up there? And he says, oh, it's the usual thing. You know, all the corrupt people are being rewarded. The hypocrites are doing very well. All the virtuous people are getting hanged and quartered and having a terrible time. And those kind of comments come through the stories constantly, this sense that it's the good people do not do very well under this situation and that there's so much corruption, venality. And Basile uses every opportunity to point that out. And he has these satirical eclogues that interleave the stories and happen between each day. The stories are divided into five different days. And at the end of each day, there's a series of these sort of satirical verses in which he really drives the point home so that it's not subtle. He says, if you want to try and be a poet, you're going to have a disaster. Your hopes are sent to the wind if you try to be a merchant it's going to be terrible for you any walk of life but especially if you go into the court I think his greatest vitriol is reserved for the court and he says the life of a courtier is absolutely terrible because you're constantly having to suck up to these awful stupid people and never getting anywhere in the end so it's very much there and the politics is very much a part of his storytelling as it is I think throughout the history of fairy tales that they are a wonderful screen for subversiveness you can do anything with them and the powers that be aren't really going to know because you can just say, I'm just telling a little tale for the tiny tots. Ah, yes, this is James Scott's idea of hidden transcripts, that those who don't have power sort of have these hidden transcripts where they make jokes or they mock or they tell tales that take down the powerful, but they can all have deniability. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. So we've got these stories reflecting his society in the details like the food and in the political commentary. His work also reflects the often less discussed history of slavery in Naples. Am I right in thinking that we find you know, language and stereotyping that we would find today to be racist? Absolutely. It makes it quite difficult to read for a modern reader, but it's a work that reflects its time, reflects both the virtues and I guess the failings of its author. The framing story is about the beautiful princess who travels through various obstacles and within the structure of the overall collection becomes part of a series of storytelling, a little bit like the A Thousand One Nights with Shehrazadi's stories. It's a series of stories that are told and that it ends with her liberation and her marrying the prince who she was always supposed to marry. But in the meantime, her place at the side of the handsome prince has been taken by an evil slave girl who is seen to have usurped her place in the world and to have tried to take on the role of being a queen and that is very much looked down on within the stories and that's a reflection of the racism of its time and it crops up in various stories as well where you hear descriptions of different characters using racist terminology however there are also different elements within some of the stories. There's a story called Rosella in which you have a character who's coming from outside of Christendom and is the heroine of the story. And the story follows her heroic deeds towards a happy ending. There's a mixture in there, but certainly it does reflect some of the difficult details of that time in history. And I think from what I understand in your work, that we see also that kind of complexity when it comes to the treatment of women, because, you know, there's some sort of casual misogyny. But there are also women who act with real agency. I'm thinking of the ogre's daughter, Philodoro, who declares, I am a woman who knows how to take her own measure, and I do not need others to serve as my ruler. And I wondered how this, along with the knowledge that many women of his time still met with bad ends, reflects a time in which most women had very little power over their lives. I think Basile is definitely doing some really interesting things with the idea of female agency and who the heroine in a story can be. And so you have the framing story of Princess Zosa. She is cursed by a woman who she's laughed at whilst she was in a state of undress. So she has to go on this journey to recover her fortune. So we see her sort of taking control of her own situation with various sort of trials and tribulations along the way. There's many different stories here where female characters speak out and they express themselves in a way that they weren't allowed to do in some of the later fairy tale collections. So when you get to the French collections by Charles Perrault and the Grimm's especially, the heroines can seem very muted. But there's something I think wonderfully Neapolitan about Basile's collection. The heroines are not silent. They speak out, they express their 
point of view. And in a lot of cases, they have agency. In a lot of other cases, they don't. They're not necessarily able to defend themselves. But for example, the story that I mentioned about the ogres, the heroine in that story, she finds out the only way to heal her lover is to bring back the lard of an ogre. And so she tricks the ogres into taking her in as a guest and then she kills them and collects up their lard in a jar and takes it back to heal her beloved. There's stories like that which we can wrestle with a bit and wonder about what the story is saying, but they certainly, I think, can't be accused of lacking in the agency of the heroines there. (laughs) They are wonderful windows into his world. And I wonder if we can follow the fairy tales on a little bit. You just mentioned 17th century French writers, and can we pick up with a couple of those? You talk about Baroness Dolnoy in your work who coins the phrase les contes des fées, from which we get the term fairy tales. And some of her tales have origins in what Busily is writing. But how are they different? And how does that difference reflect her specific cultural and political identity? Yes, the Baroness Dolnoy had an extraordinary life. She was married very young. I think she was 15 or so when she was married to the Baron Dolnoy, and it wasn't a very happy marriage. She ended up accusing him of fiddling with the king's taxes. He got sent to the Bastille and turned the tables on her, and then she had to flee, eventually found her way to London and Madrid was possibly a spy for the French court, which was how she was allowed back into favour, certainly wrote books about her experiences in these various places, and then ended up writing these tales. And as you mentioned, she coined that term, or is credited with coining that term, the Conte de Fée. And her stories are absolutely magical. They're very subversive in their own way. Many of them are about princesses or women in a financially privileged situation but who are wrestling against the patriarchy and against the oppression of being forced into marriages with people that they don't want to. And so in a lot of the stories, they find themselves marrying a pig or a rhinoceros or a giant or an imp, some form of animal or supernatural creature that they either don't necessarily want to marry or through their own resilience and various resources, they are able to find the handsome prince behind that gruff exterior. And it's variations of what we now think of as the Beauty and the Beast story. Roughly half of her stories involve that sort of template. So she's challenging the idea that the woman must marry basically a monster. And she's challenging the monstrousness of those rules and of the sort of grooms, often older, rather decrepit men who younger women like her were forced to marry. And she's challenging the idea that a woman must submit to that and must accept the husband as he is and must simply obey him. Her heroines are resourceful. They fight for their own goals in their own way. There's the story of Finette Sendron who dispatches an ogre with a hatchet and pushes another one into an oven. There's Belbel who dresses up as a man and then slays a dragon. The princess Marveyusi in a delightful story called The Ram who tells her father that she's had a vision that she will be replacing him and becoming the ruler. So he sends her off to be executed in the woods with the huntsman who doesn't have the heart to kill her. And so she ends up wandering through the woods until she meets a ram He's a very well-dressed ram and he has Spanish wine and foie gras in his caves. He seems to be quite a good person to enjoy some hospitality with. And she decides that actually he's probably all right. He explains that he's a prince who's been cursed into the form of a ram by a witch. So she decides to hang out with him for a while and, and that, yes, she'll marry him once he turns back into a prince. But unfortunately, in the meantime... She goes back home to the castle to attend her sister's weddings in disguise and the ram, worrying that she's not going to come back, his heart breaks and so he dies and and the end of the story shows her becoming the ruler of the kingdom just as she had predicted and her father apologising to her and giving her the crown but also the sad fact that the ram is no more. But in that story, 
it also plays along with one of the themes that we find in a lot of the Baroness Dorno stories, which is the idea that the weakness of men, that they are susceptible to love, that they fall head over heels in love with these beautiful, brilliant princesses and then die of broken hearts. And whereas it's the heroine who is the stronger one and who endures and carries on. So interesting that that sort of thing is coming out of the late 17th century. I know it is amazing, but I think it's also interesting and unsettling that, that those stories were to some extent stifled. So there were a lot of problems with getting licenses to print the stories. And the Baroness Dorno herself, who ran a salon where she had people gathering around her house on Rue Benoit in Paris, and they'd all tell each other stories. But she eventually had her own salon closed down. Her ability to publish her stories endured a lot of difficulties with that. Others amongst the other saloniers, there's one who was dispatched to a castle accused of lesbianism, another were sent off to a monastery, various different accusations that were thrown at them to stop them from being creative. And that's one of the reasons why their stories didn't break through into the mainstream in the way that the stories of Charles Perrault, who was connected to the court and connected to the government much more closely, that his stories were able to flourish in a different way. And I suppose the fact that you've got this recurring character of the monster groom in itself reflects the imbalance of power between the sexes at the time. It's almost as if Dornoy is creating a fantasy world in which the awful men are weak and die off and the women are left triumphant at the end. But it is a fantasy and actually, in practice, that's not what's happening for most women in their lives. Exactly. It is a fantasy. One of her stories is of the Isle of Happiness, which is ruled entirely by fairy women. And there's one prince who is good enough to be allowed to come in and dwell with them for a time. And that's a trope that is repeated, actually, amongst other storytellers around her, this idea of the sort of the Amazonian isolated kingdom of or queendom. But uh, yeah, as you say, it ultimately is a fantasy. And in fact, in that story, the prince eventually leaves and then dies very soon after. And there's that sense that this fantasy can only be sustained in the women's imagination, in the imagination of these storytellers. But once you go out into the real world outside, of course, it just sort of falls apart. Politically, she was living through a turbulent time of French history. Does this instability inform her writing? I think you have a strong sense of the pressures that are coming in from the establishment and the increasingly religious tone of Louis XIV's court and the impact that that was having on these female storytellers. But I don't think that the Baroness Dornoy and some of her fellow storytellers were necessarily responding to lots of different aspects of political life outside of them because they weren't really able to access that very much. So there is a sense of these stories being in a bit of a bubble in the way that perhaps with somebody like Basile's stories before them, you feel a little bit more of the world coming into those stories. You've pointed out the difference between what Baroness Dornoy was doing and at least the sort of success of her contemporary Charles Perrault. And her tales are written in a conversational tone, but they are tales of fairies to be read out in salons for adults. Perrault, you know, the author of Tales of Mother Goose, wrote predominantly for children. Why do you think these stories lent themselves to adapting to such different audiences? I don't know if they were necessarily directed to entirely different audiences, because I think that often the same stories that were available for adults to entertain them could also be told to children. It's just a question of what you're peeling away in order to make them stories for the nursery. Perrault's stories, certainly, I'd agree, were stripped down to the point where they were suitable almost only for the nursery. But there's a line in, in Basile's collection where he talks about these 
being stories such as the old women tell to the little ones. And yet his stories are clearly not written for the little ones. So there's this sense that the story itself can be told to the little ones, but then over it are all these other layers that make the stories witty enough and layered enough that the adults can get something from them too. And I think it goes back to the orality, which is really at the heart of the fairy tale tradition, which is that these are stories going back hundreds of years in many cases, where if you strip the story down to its core, that is a story that you can tell to children and they should be able to get it. That, I think, is one of the definitions of a fairy tale. But that literary authors in their salons and in their academies are adding all these extra layers to them so that they are also stories that can be entertaining for a sort of self-consciously sophisticated literary elite. And... It seems fascinating to me that the 16th and 17th centuries are generating this genre. Why do you think fairy tales flourished so much at this time? That's a really interesting question. And I think it's to do with that sense that, as you were mentioning earlier on, about there being all these great advances in science and philosophy and knowledge, that there is this sense of transition. But there's a certain kind of transition going on at this time. You're going through the period of reformation, and but also of shifting away from a lot of religious orthodoxies into something that we can trace the, of what we see as the modern world from. And I think that a lot of those beliefs that are enshrined in the stories, they become things that you can start to make into entertainment. So you have, for example, stories of witches and the 16th century, the 17th century is very much still a time when witches were seen as something really quite scary to a lot of people. They believed that spells could be cast on their crops, that, that terrible things might happen to them. But you're also starting to move away in some circles from that. And I think the same people no longer think that they're likely to come across ogres but there's still these beliefs are still surviving in some communities. And so I think there's a sense with a lot of fairy tales, I think that they're recording that point at which some of these old ideas, the people who are telling the stories are no longer afraid of them. And so they can tell them, they can tell them to children without being afraid. They're not afraid that they're going to be cursed by a witch or that they're going to be eaten up by an ogre. But that these beliefs and these ideas at the same time still have a bite in them to give the stories their sting. Finally then, do you think that is why they've continued to resonate? Is it that sense that there is something terrible here, but that something beautiful, as you talk about in your introduction, is sort of poured out of it that makes them stick? Are fairy tales in the end about hope and optimism? I think hope is a really big part of them. That idea that you can be lost in the worst situation possible. And there's always that hope that there might be some way through. There's a little brother and sister who are lost in the woods they've been abandoned by their parents what on earth is going to happen now well, at least there's a house ahead with bread and cakes maybe they'll get some help there and as it turns out there's a witch there who then tries to eat them but they're resourceful enough to find their way to escape from there and i think that fairy tales offer that chance that your luck can spin so many stories are about rags to riches or about finding love that everything looks rather bleak and dire and then something happens you stumble across a crock of gold you meet a fairy you do a favour for a goblin or something and everything changes. I think fairy tales also offer the idea that a story is available to everybody, which is not an idea that was fully accepted in the time. If you look at the range of fairy tales, they were being told by everybody. That's one of the reasons why they're really hard to pin down, because so many of the 
original fairy tales were told by people who weren't writing them down. They weren't able to write them down, but they were passed along and then eventually they'd be written down by people like Basile and Perrault and so on. But if you go back to, there's a wonderful collection called The Ocean of the Streams, a story from 11th century India. And in that collection, which has many stories that we can find traces of in European culture, we find stories being told by gods, by kings, princes and princesses, generals, merchants. There's a story of a merchant explaining how he made a fortune out of dead mouse. There's stories told by bedstead makers, stories told by demons in fiery pits. And the idea of that collection, I think, is an idea that I think is there in all the fairy tale collections, really, which is that stories are for everyone and fairy tales are for everybody right across all the spectrum of society. And I think that's, for me, that's one of the most exciting things about them. Thank you so much. It's been really lovely to talk to you about this because it shows the way in which something as unexpected, a historical source perhaps, as a fairy tale, can give us enormous amounts of insight into different societies, into not only the sort of circumstances of their everyday lives, but also into their hopes and dreams and fears. And it's been really enchanting and revelatory to listen to you about it. Thank you very much, Susanna. Thanks very much for inviting me on. Thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. And also to my researcher, Alice Smith, and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We are always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to follow Not Just the Tudors wherever you get your podcasts, so you get each new episode as soon as it's released. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.